there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, sex trafficking, and assault that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The parlor house at 2131 Dearborn Street was outdated and in disrepair, despite thriving as one of the Chicago Levy District's many brothels. The sisters, Ada and Minna, were careful not to insult the madam as she proudly conducted a tour, but they shared private looks of mirth as they noticed dust on the silk curtains and stains on the carpet. This place looked like a den of iniquity which, of course, it was. But Ada and Minna had no intention of running a typical resort, as brothels were called at the turn of the 20th century. The sisters saw far greater potential in the building, with its ornate mahogany staircases and hand-carved crown molding. Effie Hankins was ready to retire and looking for a buyer to carry on her business. Ada and Minna were new in town and had a grand vision for an empire of upscale vice. It was a perfect match. The three women shook on the deal. $20,000 up front, $35,000 due within the year, and $500 per month in rent. Ada and Minna were now the proud owners of their very own so-called sporting club in Chicago's most notorious vice district. They just agreed to spend, in one year, the equivalent of almost $2 million in today's currency. And that was before the cost of remodeling the place to bring it up to their level of taste. This lavish expense worried Ada and Minna not at all. They knew, just as surely as they knew their own names, that they were destined to be the greatest madams in Chicago. And they were right. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? 
we didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a podcast original. Today, we're talking about the Everleigh sisters, the most notorious madams in early 20th century America. While running a brothel catering to millionaires, they wove for themselves a legend so enduring that the truth about their past remains a mystery today. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. From February 1st, 1900 until 1911, Ada and Minna Everlay operated the Everlay Club, the most exclusive brothel in Chicago. When it opened during the height of the red light district era, Their business was technically illegal, yet through a system of bribes and patronage, it was able to operate in plain sight. Just entering the Everlake Club cost $50, or about $1,600 today. Instead of duping young girls into sex work, like some madams or pimps of their era were known to do, the Everlays offered stable and lucrative employment. Ada and Minna Everlay revolutionized the sex trade with their unique understanding of their customers' psychological needs. With no training or formal background in marketing, they intuited branding concepts and sales principles that are taught today in MBA programs around the world. Today, we'll talk about where the sisters came from, how they became Chicago's greatest and most notorious madams, and the early days of the Everlay Club. Next week, we'll take you through the club's rise and fall and the vice crusaders who opposed their presence in Chicago. We'll also discuss how the same narratives that drove the Everlays out of Chicago are still in use today and how this ultimately endangers sex workers. But first, let's take a look at the early days of the Everlay sisters. Chicago's queens of vice weren't always Everlays. Ada and Minna were born with the much more pedestrian surname of Sims in Greene County, Virginia. Their parents, Montgomery and Jenny Sims, were first cousins. Cousin marriage was common in the antebellum American South. According to historian Peter Winthrop Bardaglio, plantation owners like the Sims were especially likely to marry their cousins, or even their siblings. Kinship marriages served to concentrate wealth within the family and preserve family names. For a time, the couple enjoyed great wealth. Prior to the Civil War, the Sims family's 3,000-acre plantation was worked by as many as 20 enslaved people, producing wheat, hay, tobacco, and potatoes. On account of this enslaved labor, Montgomery Sims didn't have to work the land himself. Instead, he studied law at the University of Virginia and became a practicing attorney in Charlottesville. Montgomery and Jenny had their first child, a girl named Lula, in 1862, right in the middle of the Civil War. Ada was the next born, 
on February 21, 1864. Third was Minna on July 13, 1866. Ada, then age two, fell in love with Minna the day she was born. It was the start of a lifelong, unique bond between the sisters. But their relationship did not hide them and the Sims family as a whole from the consequences of the Civil War. The years following the four-year conflict were trying for plantation owners. Many, including the Sims family, were stripped of the luxurious lifestyles once provided by slave labor. Crops went unharvested, fields unplanted, and cattle unfed. After Minna's birth, her parents were forced to give up Montgomery's legal practice and move home to salvage what they could of the family plantation. Unfortunately, the young lawyer was an inept farmer, and commodity prices were depressed by the grave post-war economic conditions in Virginia. This economic distress didn't prevent the Sims from having four more children, daughters Willie and Flora, and sons Warren and George. Four more mouths to feed meant even leaner times for the entire family. Ada and Minna saw their parents grow weary and drawn from stress. Things went from bad to worse for the Sims family when Montgomery's older brother, Isaac, disappeared with what was left of the family's pre-war fortune. He drained the rainy day fund left over from his grandparents' estate and ran off to Missouri, never to be heard from again by his family. Young Ada was shy, traditional, and reticent, while Minna was bold and brash, describing herself as a free thinker. But despite being opposites in many ways, they were fiercely loyal to one another. That bond only grew stronger after witnessing their uncle's betrayal of his own brother. Ada and Minna swore to be each other's confidants and best friends for life, no matter what. In 1876, when Minna was 10 and Ada was 12, their mother died of an unknown illness, along with their younger sister, Willie. After Jenny's death, Montgomery made the difficult decision to allow their youngest child, George, to be adopted by an aunt. The loss of a parent and two siblings at once dealt a devastating blow to both Ada and Minna. The future Everlay sisters were so distraught, they didn't even want to speak or think about Willie and George. Soon after the death of their mother and sister and the adoption of their brother, Ada and Minna began telling people they came from a family of five children rather than seven. For the rest of their lives, they would speak about Willie and George only to each other, if at all. Then, in 1881, when Minna was 15 and Ada 17, the already grieving sisters suffered another devastating loss. Their eldest sister, Lula, died suddenly. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. According to the New York Times, the trauma of childhood sibling loss is broad and far-reaching, with its psychological effects most pronounced in girls who lose a sister. Such girls are at an increased risk of anxiety, depression, attention disorders, and anger. After Lula's death, Minna felt completely overwhelmed. She had survived the loss of her mother and sister and the adoption of her brother, only to see another sister die just five years later. She felt like her future held only more pain. Minna considered ending her own life. 
As reported in the book, Sin in the Second City, Madams, Ministers, Playboys, and the Battle for America's Soul, Minna later wrote to the playwright Irving Wallace about this incident. She wrote, I had a sister, Lula, who played the violin. Her arm became paralyzed at 19 and later she died. I wanted to kill myself, but Ada wouldn't let me. Teenage Minna was a feisty and brilliant bookworm who loved to sleep late. Ada was wise, strategic, and introverted, eschewing small talk. When cheerful Minna reached her lowest point, it was her quiet sister who noticed her hidden pain and talked her through it. They were already inseparable, but from that point on, they knew they could never leave each other's side. At this point in Ada and Minna's lives, the narrative becomes clouded. Ada and Minna claim that they became debutantes in Kentucky, then were married off as teenagers to two brothers with the surname Lester, both of whom were brutally abusive. After the sisters became infamous and fabulously wealthy, one might imagine that their ex-husbands or their families would have, at some point, spoken about them to the papers. They'd have been hunted down, surely, by one of the hundreds of journalists who reported on the Everlay sisters over time. But no Lester brothers ever came forward, either to criticize their ex-wives or to defend themselves against very public accusations of abuse. There appears to be no historical record of these marriages, or indeed, of the Lester's existence. We can't be certain that Ada and Minna were lying, but if they ever really married two cruel brothers, history has swallowed them whole and left no trace. According to the sisters, they attended finishing school like proper Southern Bells. But when you consider that Montgomery was an impoverished widower, it seems unlikely that he paid for such extravagances. They did, however, live for a time in Madison County, Virginia, where they often visited the home of a former Confederate general who was also a past governor of Virginia. The ex-general had a fountain on his lawn and expensive velvet furniture. The girls observed the lives of the general's daughters and may well have constructed a narrative about themselves based, in part, on fantasies about slipping into those wealthy girls' silk slippers. Having seen the aftermath of their family's fall from grace, Ada and Minna craved the luxurious lifestyle their ancestors once knew. They likely weren't married to the Lester brothers, and we don't know exactly how the sisters did spend their young adulthood. But whatever they were doing during those years, it served to further strengthen their bond and to nurture a growing disdain for other people, particularly for men. Ada and Minna knew they were smarter than most people, men and women alike. Increasingly, they only really enjoyed socializing with and speaking to one another. According to Sin in the Second City, a woman named Evelyn Dement, who claims to be the grandniece of Ada and Minna, has offered at least one possible alternate history for the sisters. In a 1989 letter, Dement wrote, their plantation was lost because they couldn't pay the taxes. They began as sex workers and became madams. Their father put them in the business. There's no way to confirm Dement's claims that Ada and Minna were sex workers before they became madams. But if so, it might help to explain their later commitment to equitable working conditions in their brothel. If they were themselves in the life, as sex workers at the time referred to their trade, 
they would have developed a sincere appreciation for the difference between a good madam and an unkind one. But before going into the brothel business for good, they tried their hands at another, slightly less stigmatized occupation. At some point in the late 1880s or early 1890s, according to Sin in the Second City, Ada and Minna joined a traveling theater company. They later claimed acting was their ticket out of their abusive marriages. If Dement is to be believed, their time on the stage might have actually been a ticket out of sex work. Either way, joining the company represented newfound freedom for the girls. Yet, their time on the stage failed to deliver the fame and fortune to which they aspired. By this time, Ada and Minna were using the surname Lester, whether or not it came from their supposed husbands. They enjoyed seeing the country, traveling by train, and visiting the greatest cities in America. Performance came naturally to the two Southern Bells, who loved dressing up and had a knack for telling stories. Around 1892, the traveling company broke up, leaving its actresses stranded in Omaha, Nebraska, the site of their final show. Ada and Minna were at loose ends. Actresses were not much more respected in polite society than sex workers, and the prudish housewives of Omaha wanted little to do with the girls then calling themselves the Lester sisters. Ada and Minna were by now 26 and 28. They tended to lie about their ages, but they were well into old maid territory for their generation. This didn't trouble them personally, as by this time, both women had developed an intense dislike for men. But they knew that their singledom would present certain challenges in obtaining the lavish, high-society life they craved. If they couldn't gain admittance to high society on the merits of their intelligence and beauty, Ada and Minna decided they would force society to come to them, or at least society's husbands. Coming up, the sisters open their first brothel. And now, back to the story. In 1895, when Ada was 31 and Minna 29, the sisters were still living in Omaha, Nebraska, where they had been rebuffed by high society, particularly by their female peers. As single women in their late 20s and early 30s respectively, with a history of such shocking behavior as acting on the stage, they were not considered suitable dinner guests for the local upper crust. This wasn't going to stop the clever sisters from obtaining the upper-class lifestyle they desired. They put their heads together and came up with a plan to make a fortune. In 1898, Omaha was planning an exposition, an extended fair expected to draw guests from all over the country. Ada and Minna knew that this event would attract an unprecedented number of wealthy people to Omaha. Planning well ahead, the sisters decided to go into the business of sex in advance of the exposition. By the time the fair opened its gates in 1898, they reasoned, they could have the most well-respected brothel in Omaha. Then they could raise their rates during the fair, catering only to the richest guests, and make a bundle. Somehow, Ada and Minna obtained $35,000 in cash in 1895, this would be over a million dollars today. It didn't come from family money. Even treacherous Uncle Isaac had by then lost his stolen fortune, according to Sin in the Second City. 
At this point in American history, brothels operated in so-called red-light districts in most every major city, especially those along transcontinental railway lines. Although sex work was illegal, local law enforcement tended to look the other way as long as bribes were paid on time and the sex workers stayed in their designated areas. This made investing in a brothel a less risky proposition than one might think. It's likely that the seed money for Ada and Minna's startup brothel came from some wealthy capitalist, impressed by their business acumen. Perhaps he was one of Omaha's cattle barons. Perhaps he was someone who had seen the sisters on the stage during their tour. Whoever he was, his name is now lost to history, but he likely saw a tidy return on his capital investment. That's because Ada and Minna were gifted madams from the very beginning. Their first Omaha brothel at the corner of 12th and Jackson Street was an instant success, despite charging far higher prices than surrounding houses. Before the exposition began, they'd raised enough money to open a second location at 14th and Dodge, even closer to the future fairgrounds. The sisters understood from the very beginning that, to build an enduring business, they needed to invest in their personal brands. They outfitted themselves in tight corsets and silk skirts. They commissioned oil portraits of themselves to hang in the parlors of their brothels. In short, Ada and Minna understood that they, even more than their employees, were the reason customers would come to their door. As word spread of the Omaha sister madams with their glamorous lifestyle and luxurious clothes, men couldn't resist seeing Ada and Minna for themselves. If the madams of a house were this fascinating, how beautiful the girls inside must be. All in all, the Trans-Mississippi Exposition running from June to November of 1898, attracted 2.6 million visitors to Omaha. Many of them were wealthy and powerful industrialists from across America. And many of those took time to darken the door of one or both of the sisters' brothels. During the fair, Ada and Minna charged $10 just to enter their parlors. That's about $300 today, well beyond the purchasing power of the average Omaha businessman. But their exorbitant pricing was just another selling point for the kinds of customers they wanted to attract. The sisters, having grown up in poverty while witnessing luxury next door, understood that the high cost of goods is a benefit, not a drawback for wealthy consumers. They had seen their Confederate general neighbor splash out for expensive clothes, not because they were higher quality, but because they displayed his wealth. They reasoned that the same phenomenon would hold in the sex trade. If they charged higher prices, customers would proudly pay in order to flaunt their wealth in front of their peers. According to Dr. Peter Noel Murray, author of Inside the Consumer Mind, the appeal of luxury goods is primarily psychological, even consumers who know that a similar product is available at a lower price will often choose to buy a luxury brand, not in spite of, but because of its high cost. Dr. Noel writes, because luxury products have the power to change the consumer's perception of who they are by altering the self, they deliver desired emotional end benefits, including self-esteem and hedonic feelings such as satisfaction and power. 
Without a university education or any training in sales and marketing, the sisters had intuited the basic psychological phenomenon behind luxury pricing. The reward for their efforts was a 100% return on investment. By the time the fair closed its doors on November 1st of 1898, the sisters had banked $70,000, worth more than $2.1 million today. But Ada and Minna didn't stop there. They knew that with the exposition no longer drawing out of towners, their prices would be too high for the average Omaha John. So they embarked on a second tour of the country by rail, this time not as actresses, but as businesswomen. The sisters were in search of a new base of operations, somewhere with a wealthier clientele than Omaha, but without a dominant local brothel. The sisters paid unsuccessful visits to New Orleans, San Francisco, St. Louis, New York City, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Kansas City, and Pittsburgh. Each city was deficient in one of their two criteria. Either the locals' pocketbooks weren't capable of sustaining a high-rent brothel, or someone had already cornered the upper end of the market. In late 1899, Ada and Minna visited Washington, D.C. to consult with expert madam Cleo Maitland. Her D Street brothel was among the most respectable in the country. Cleo had an idea that changed Ada and Minna's lives. She sent the sisters to Chicago to meet with Effie Hankins, who currently operated a brothel in two adjoining three-story mansions with a total of 50 rooms. The buildings, originally built for the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, were luxurious and expansive, perfect for the kind of house Ada and Minna wanted to run. Effie was willing to sell her entire business, including her furnishings and her girls, to Ada and Minna for $55,000. It was a fortune, and a good portion of their accumulated $70,000 in profits from Omaha, some of which they'd already spent on their prolonged train journey. And they knew they'd be throwing out much of Effie's hard work. Well-intentioned though the former proprietor was, she hadn't operated the superior sort of brothel Ada and Minna intended to establish. Her workers were rough girls who made lewd gestures to beckon men off the street, not the elegant debutante-like courtesans the sisters envisioned employing. Even so, the initial investment was worth it for the prime location. The main building was already usable at 2131 Dearborn, the adjoining location at 2133 Dearborn only needed a little bit of work to be up and running. Ada, who was the more gifted accountant of the two, did a little math in her head. Once they had 50 fully operational rooms, they could expect to easily gross at least $100 per room per night. They'd pay their girls by salary and collect the client's money themselves so as to keep the lion's share while still offering the most lucrative jobs in the sex industry. Even after deducting expenses, they'd make back the $55,000 investment in a few weeks if business was good. Those expenses would have to include line items for bribes and protection fees. The levy was what Chicago then called a segregated vice district. As the prevailing theory went, legal prohibition could never stop vice entirely. 
But if you shepherded brothels into designated neighborhoods, then the only people entering those neighborhoods would already be sinners anyway. No harm done. But in order for brothels to avoid prosecution, they had to pay off their local aldermen. In the Levy District, those were Michael Hinkydink Kenna and Bathhouse John Coughlin. Fortunately for the sisters, the Levy's many madams had already negotiated standard rates with the authorities. The sisters shook on the deal and set to work totally renovating the property. Gone were the cheap satin and stained rugs. Gone, too, were the staff of world-weary women in the habit of robbing and battering their customers. Minna had a vision for a new kind of sex worker who would provide more than just a physical release. She would be an educated, captivating lady, devoted to giving the illusion that her liaisons with customers were more than business arrangements. She would never pressure her clients to get down to business. Rather, she would flirt coyly in the parlor, letting herself be pursued as her potential customer strove to impress her with his wealth and intellect. After a lifetime of observing the behavior of men, 33-year-old Minna had come to realize that when they visited courtesans, they weren't just looking for sex. These men wanted to feel less alone. A 1982 study published in the tantalizingly named journal Deviant Behavior examined the psychology of men who pay for sex. The researchers found, as Minna intuitively understood, that Johns place a high value on an enthusiastic sexual partner when paying for sex. They seek out sex workers who give the illusion of being genuinely sexually interested in their customers and who can make the experience of buying sex feel like an unpaid, mutual sexual relationship. In today's sex industry, the common term used for such an arrangement is girlfriend experience. In other words, clients are buying not a physical act, but the temporary illusion of having a rewarding, romantic, and sexual relationship with a woman. The well-heeled customers the sisters sought weren't single, lonely men who had to pay to spend time with a woman. The sisters once wrote, if it weren't for the married men, we couldn't have carried on at all. In other words, most men well off enough to afford a high-class escort were married. They likely had children and business worries awaiting them at home. The sisters' new brothel was referred to as a resort for a reason. It served as a one-night vacation for Chicago's richest men, allowing them to pretend that they were living a less stressful, more exciting life with a sexually vivacious girlfriend. With that goal in mind, the sisters spent months sprucing the place up and interviewing prospective employees. Ada took charge of the hiring process. Appalled by tales in the local papers of underage girls sold to competing madams for as little as $25, she determined to hire only women over the age of 18 who saw themselves as professional courtesans. The sisters' habit of wearing diamond butterfly pins was incorporated into the branding of their new resort. Ada called her girls butterflies and enforced a strict standard in hiring them. They had to undergo regular examinations by physicians and, if they contracted a sexually transmitted infection, had to undergo treatment before returning to work. They were required to wear full-length gowns to socialize with guests, not the lingerie donned by competitors at other houses. They had to avoid drugs and excessive drinking. 
most importantly, they had to be able to perform more than just sex acts. The girls were told to study poetry, literature, philosophy, and current events. They were expected to be dazzling conversationalists. Minna, in particular, was incredibly well-read herself. In childhood, she escaped thoughts of her family's poverty by burying herself in books. By 1899, she was a devotee of French novelist Honoré de Balzac, who died in 1850 after writing his magnum opus, Le Comédie Humaine, or The Human Comedy. Balzac had written of sexual pleasure that it is like certain drugs. To continue to obtain the same results, one must double the dose, and death or brutalization is contained in the last one. Minna taught Balzac's philosophy to all her courtesans and enforced upon them the expectation that they dole out pleasure in measured doses so as to prevent their customers from becoming like desperate addicts, rushing onwards towards a lethal eventuality. Those who had worked in other brothels found this idea hard to swallow. They asked their new madams how they expected to compete with brothels in the same neighborhood that offered more extreme pleasures. For instance, at Vic Shaw's place, the girls got naked and whipped each other in a boxing ring. Minna and Ada assured their butterflies that men would flock to their rooms. Not only that, they would pay a premium for the right to do so. Minna reminded the courtesans that one $50 trick was far more desirable than five $10 ones. Less wear and tear, she teased. At the Everlay Club, there would be no lineup of scantily clad courtesans for the Johns to choose from. Instead, women would be brought out one by one, clothed in evening gowns, and formally introduced to the gentlemen, as if they were meeting at a society party for a twirl around the ballroom. The girls were skeptical. It sounded too good to be true. Perform less often and make more money? If that worked, why weren't all the houses doing it? But Ada and Minna sounded so certain of their plan, the girls couldn't help getting excited. It sounded nice, the idea of being presented to the men rather than having to stand in a line making lewd gestures to attract attention. Renovations were going well. As the turn of the 20th century dawned on Chicago, the sisters installed a $15,000 gold-leafed piano in their parlor room, aptly dubbed the Gold Room. They hired pianist Vanderpool Vanderpool, who they called Van Van, to play for their nightly guests. There was just one thing left to do. The surname Lester wouldn't do for a pair of madams in such an upscale establishment. Sims was no good, certainly. They didn't want to be traced back to their family of origin, and besides, it sounded pedestrian. Minna and Ada both thought fondly of their grandmother, who had always signed her letters, Everly Yours. They considered the name Everly, but found it too had a working class ring to it when it rolled off the tongue. Finally, after much careful consideration, the sisters decided to add an upper crust garnish to the Everly name, turning it into Everlay. The pun in the name didn't escape the clever sisters. Right from the very beginning, they envisioned guests telling each other, I'm getting Everlaid tonight. So the house was dubbed the Everlay Club, and the girls were Everlay Butterflies. Anticipation built in the house's 50 rooms as preparations for opening night continued. 
The girls were abuzz with gossip and ideas. They spied on their madams, trying to determine if they really had the social clout to pull in the millionaire Johns they promised. Before the house had even seen its first client, the girls tussled for position, competing to impress Minna with their knowledge of literature. Finally, the date was set. On February 1st, 1900, the Everlake Club would open for business and Chicago's Levy District would never be the same. When we come back, the grand opening of the finest vice den in Chicago. And now back to the story. The girls were hired. The furniture was installed in opulent rooms with names like the Gold Room. Welsh rarebit was on the menu in the custom-made dining room built to look like a Pullman train car. The prefix dinner available there started at $50, which coincidentally was also the minimum a man must spend in order to enter the Everlay Club at all. $50 in 1900 is about $1,500 today. Even the Everlay butterflies thought this was far too much to charge for admission. At their previous jobs, those who had worked in the sex trade before had been lucky to get a client willing to spend five or $10 on a single liaison. But Minna held firm as she prepared her girls for the grand opening on February 1st, 1900. Not only would she not bend her rules on the minimum deposit for entry, she refused to pander to local expectations for an opening night. Unlike other local madams, the Everlay sisters didn't reach out to influential local politicians and businessmen, begging them to attend. They didn't offer free samples of the girls' wares. They didn't even send out invitations, nor did they advertise. The sisters had seen enough of the sex trade in Omaha and on their tour of the country to abide by one simple maxim. The less sex workers seemed like they needed or wanted men's business, the more of it they would get. Once again, the sisters had, on their own, worked out a psychological principle still in use in sales today. According to social psychologist Dr. Jeremy Nicholson, the scarcity principle is the theory that people desire something more when it's difficult to obtain. This is the principle famously employed by Hermes, the luxury fashion house that intentionally makes its signature Birkin bags not only unaffordable, but unobtainable even for many wealthy people. On opening night, Minna gave a final pep talk to her girls. She cautioned them to hold the line. They were not, under any circumstances, to invite their old light-pocketed clients to this house. They were not to complain if Minna turned away a potential customer who was not qualified to enter the Everlake Club. If the girls would just trust her vision, Minna promised they would earn beyond their wildest dreams, tonight and every night. Then she banished them from the parlor to wait in their rooms. She would call them when they were to be introduced to a man. At 8 p.m. on February 1st, 1900, Minna threw open the doors of the Everlay Club for the very first time. Although the sisters hadn't advertised the opening beyond word of mouth, there was already a crowd outside. Word had spread in Chicago of the madams crazy enough to buy a $15,000 piano just to be played while men met their evening companions. 
the local Johns were eager to see what was behind the ornate doors. Minna, on the other hand, was not eager to see the first few men who arrived. They were rough around the edges and not nearly rich enough for her standards. According to Sin in the Second City, Minna steadfastly turned away the first two groups of customers to arrive. This, too, proved an effective piece of marketing strategy. With their hopes of admittance dashed, the men went away and complained around town. Some wealthier fellows heard their complaints and were intrigued. Why was this club so exclusive that it was turning away business on opening night? A group of cattle barons from Texas heard word and made their way to the Everlay Club. Finally, customers arrived with wallets thick enough to make Minna smile. They were ushered into the opulent parlor. Within a few hours, they spent $300, worth over $9,000 today. Illegal though sex work was, the world's oldest profession had friends in high places. On opening night, according to Sin in the Second City, Minna and Ada received flowers from a U.S. senator representing Nebraska. He was a fan of their previous work in Omaha and wished them well in their new venture. Ike Bloom, who owned several local brothels, also stopped by to meet his new competitors. He was gracious, welcoming them to the neighborhood. He hoped they could work together in the future. But it wasn't all roses and handshakes. Rival local madam Vic Shaw sneered at their new upstart operation, as much out of fear as envy. She'd already seen her own staff filing out her doors to apply for jobs at the Everlay Club. She was heard around town criticizing the sisters and vowing that they wouldn't last. Perhaps more hazardous to the future of the Everlay's business were anti-vice crusaders who believed that nearly all sex workers were kidnap victims sold against their will to various madams. As word spread about the prices being paid at the Everlay Club, pious locals dipped their pens and began writing scandalized letters to the local papers. For the time being, Ada and Minna had the protection of their aldermen, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John. And as long as the mayor, a friend to both aldermen, stayed in office, that would be enough. It was the height of Chicago machine politics when candidates paid a standard rate of 50 cents per vote. Ada and Minna could certainly be forgiven for thinking the system of patronage would last forever, no matter how many fiery street preachers arose to complain about the levee's way of life, and no matter how many journalists wrote florid diatribes against segregated vice districts. All in all, that first night was more like the grand opening of a fashion house or an exclusive nightclub than the launch of a brothel. All of Chicago's most powerful men heard the news. The big spenders who managed to gain entrance to the Everlay Club immediately began bragging about the pleasures they experienced there. Minna, the sister most given to small talk, demonstrated for her courtesans the conversational airs she expected of them. She welcomed each man in turn and made him feel like a cherished guest. She called them my favorite boys. As Minna funneled men through the door, plied them with the finest wines and cuisine, and introduced them to women with whom they might go upstairs, she handed off their cash to Ada. Ada, always the shy sister, retired to a back room where she counted their earnings and calculated how much each sex worker was owed. 
By the end of the night, Ada's tally was over $1,000. That's over $30,000 today. Some houses in the levy didn't make that in a month. Ada did a little math in her head and addressed the girls directly. Each of them, she said, could expect to make $100 this week if business remained steady. That is the equivalent of approximately $3,000 per week today, making for the equivalent of around a $150,000 annual salary today. Minna was too much the Southern lady to gloat, but she smiled victoriously as she surveyed a sea of tired courtesans celebrating their newfound fortune. Her girls were earning the equivalent of a white-collar executive's salary at a time when women were shut out of nearly all jobs above the day laborer level. And they were doing it by seeing just a handful of clients per night, unlike their competitors. They were encouraged to perform oral sex rather than vaginal intercourse as often as possible. It was safer for the girls, and being considered quite the dirty act in those days, the Everlays charged a higher price for it. All in all, the Everlay method made for the happiest sex workers in town. They were doing less and earning more. As the sun rose on February 2nd, 1900, Minna and Ada bade their girls good night. Breakfast would be served at 2 p.m., Minna warned, and woe betide the courtesan who failed to rise for it. Her girls were to abide by a strict routine to ensure they presented themselves rested, refreshed, and beautiful each night. As the staff went up to their rooms and to bed, the Everlay sisters clasped hands and exchanged an adoring look. Few words were needed between them. They were as close as two people could be. Having weathered poverty, grief, and social rejection together, and now having built an empire together, the Everlays knew they had been made for each other. They had no need for male soulmates. They were each other's everything. The sisters' love wasn't sexual, but it was transcendent, the most important part of both of their lives. Nobody, not the corrupt alderman who ran Chicago's first ward, not the vice crusaders railing against the sex industry, and certainly not any man who dared to leave unhappy could make a dent in their happiness. But the sisters' commitment and their strength would soon be tested. Outside the luxurious doors of the Everlay Club, a battle was brewing. And now that the sisters had launched themselves in one night into Chicago's high society, they were sure to be caught in the middle. Next week, we'll look at the morality crusade that tore down the finest brothel in America and how it spawned rhetoric and urban legends still in use today. Thanks for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Yelena War and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.